So to the New Testament, to Ephesians, we are at the last two verses of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. been a year and about seven months, but uh, we are done with the book of Ephesians. We started, or we, we end pretty much at the same place where we started, speaking about grace and peace in reverse order, peace and grace. So we'll begin reading from Ephesians 6, starting from uh, verse 18 through verse 24. Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for this letter to the Ephesians. Father, we acknowledge that your word is truth, that your word is never false, never incorrect in anything that it addresses. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus indeed is our only hope for peace with you, that the distance between you and sinful man is so great that we are in need of a mediator. The mediator must be perfect. And in order for the mediator to be perfect, he must be God. We thank you, Father, for your Son, who indeed is God and man. Father, we thank you that in him we have a perfect mediator, that we have a sufficient sacrifice. And Father, we thank you that he is the one who is our peace because he established peace for us. Father, we thank you for the promise of the gospel that you have commanded us to embrace by faith. We thank you, Father, for your mercy to us. We thank you for your love to us. We thank you that you are the one who gives the gift of faith. And Father, we thank you for indeed your grace is unmerited and for that we have no boast, we have no demand. Father, we plead your very promises that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would guide us into all truth, And Father, may we treasure our Lord Jesus more each day. We pray that the good news of the gospel would transform our lives. And if any are here who do not know you, we pray, Father, for your mighty work of the Spirit to do the work of persuading and enabling. Father, we thank you that you are the one who gives new life. And we pray, Father, that your son Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Here, when we think about peace, the world speaks about peace from the perspective of a nation, a sovereign nation, and saying that peace means there's no act of war. So, uh, peace is the absence of war. 
But what about peace within? Here, we think not in terms of nations, but we think in terms of individuals. Just because there's uh, no active animosity that you have, there's, there's no, uh, no kind of dispute that you have with someone, it doesn't mean that you have peace. Because peace requires that you have peace within, that you have peace of conscience. And then we start thinking about how, uh, what is the order? The order is that you first must have peace with God. Anyone who does not have peace with God cannot have peace of conscience. And, and not having peace of conscience, there's no peace within. And certainly no peace without, meaning no peace with others. So when we think about these active wars, when we think about these arguments and disputes, is it the case that it only manifests the peace or the lack of peace in your life and in your heart. Here we're reminded, even as we close this passage, uh, the Apostle Paul began by speaking about grace and peace, and here he speaks again about peace and grace. Here we think about the letter to the Ephesians, and he began with the salutation, grace and peace. And when we think about how people write letters, this is how we're taught to write letters, even from a young age, that uh, in the introduction, you tell them what you plan to tell them. In the body of the letter, you tell them. And in the conclusion, the summary of the letter, you tell them what you told them. And that's essentially what the Apostle Paul has done. He's described to us our Lord Jesus, who is the man of peace. That he himself is our peace. He's the one who brings peace. And it comes to us by God's grace. That we have no boast, we have no demand, we have no claim other than his grace. And that all of this comes to us uh, as unmerited favor. We cannot earn it. And the more that we come to understand it, the more that you and I should rejoice that God gives it to us so freely. So the truth that we see in this passage, closing two verses of Ephesians 6. Paul's benediction reminds you that God's grace is the origin of all good, namely Jesus, who himself is your peace. Paul's benediction reminds you that God's grace is the origin of all good, namely Jesus, who himself is your peace. We'll look at this in two points. The first, the blessing of peace to the brothers. And second, the blessing of grace to all who love Christ. So the first point, the blessing of peace to the brothers. In verse 23. Peace be to the brothers... And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the repetition of this theme of peace. How often the term peace is mentioned in this book of Ephesians. Here, when we think about uh, the, the Hebrew terms and the Greek terms, that there is a greeting uh, in Hebrew called shalom. And here, you can imagine that the Apostle Paul fluent in Greek, but also a Jew, that when we think about how peace, there's a greeting, peace, to you. And that here, for the Jews, they would have understand this, understood this peace in terms of prosperity, of goodness, that everything good, that they, they would kind of speak to you and proclaim to you and wish upon you, that this was summarized in that one word, shalom, peace. Yet here... Uh, it's speaking beyond just the outward, beyond just the material, that ultimately peace comes from God. Peace is given to men. That peace comes through the Son, Jesus Christ. That he began this letter with the salutation, Ephesians 1, 3, 
Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the body of the letter, he speaks about how you and I have received grace unending. That every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are yours and mine in Jesus Christ. And how Jesus himself is our peace in Ephesians 2, 14. Then in the closing of this letter, Ephesians 6, 23 and 24, he repeats again this matter of peace. This matter of grace that comes to us in God's abundant goodness. Here in verse 23, peace be to the brothers. So the recipients of this peace are brothers and sisters in Christ. Here, uh, you might be asking, wait a minute. Am I claiming that non-Christians will have no peace? I'm not claiming that. God's claiming that. That God says that in his word. That God says that there is no peace for the wicked. Ephesians, uh, Isaiah 48, 22, that the wicked have no peace. There's no rest for them. Isaiah 59, 8, the way of peace they have not known. There's no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Here, outside of Christ, there can be no peace. Here we read earlier regarding having Christ as our mediator, praying in the name of Jesus. It's a reminder to us about how great a distance there is between God and sinful man. That God cannot be thought of as the neighbor next door that we can just knock on his door whenever we want. That, that we are peers speaking eye to eye. There, there, there is no such description about us and God. That there must be a mediator. That uh, God is a consuming fire. That if man approaches God. You think about Moses and how God had said, you cannot see my face and live. That we cannot summon God to ourselves. That it is only on his terms. And because of this great distance, God condescends to our level by sending us a mediator. And you think about even the coming boldly to the throne of grace. It's only because you and I have a mediator in Jesus Christ that we can even come boldly. We cannot come boldly by our own merits. We cannot come boldly by our good works. We cannot come boldly by our, our right attitudes. No, no such thing. Here, we think also about how, in contrast to the non-Christian who lacks peace, you have Christ who gives to his people his peace. John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus, when he was about to leave, telling his disciples that he's about to die, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be betrayed, and then in three days he will rise again. He understands that this is not only disappointing, but uh, it's, uh, it causes trouble to his disciples. Peter's response uh, brought about the worst rebuke that Jesus ever gave. Get behind me, Satan. Here Peter was thinking, this will never happen to you. He didn't understand the purpose of Christ's coming at the time. Jesus leaves his peace with you, his peace he gives to you. The result of having this peace then is that your heart will not be troubled or fearful. Here we think about the extent of this peace. This peace begins with, with peace with God. The natural unregenerate man is at enmity with God. We learn that in Ephesians 
chapter 2, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here, uh, the Apostle Paul is actually describing the, the state of, of a person before coming to know Christ. And he says that we are by nature children of wrath, meaning we're children who deserve wrath. And we're told that we are like the rest of mankind. Here, we ought to understand what, what the Word of God is telling us is there's nothing different about us. There was nothing better about us. If, if you're thinking, hey, there surely must have been something that I did or something that I thought that set me apart, then you've misunderstood uh, the, the whole concept of election. We can claim no merits, none at all. We're, not, we're by nature children of wrath. We're, we're, we're no better than the rest. We, we have no more merits, no more deserving. Here we think also that the natural man is the one without the work of the Holy Spirit. And there is no such thing as neutrality with God. There's no such thing as neutrality with God. So there's no person who thinks, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm neither for God nor against him. No, there, there's no such thing. That sinful man, natural man, is at enmity with God, meaning that there is rejection, there is rebellion, there is hatred. And it's only by the work of the power and the power of the Holy Spirit that sinners can be brought to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to bow the knee to submit to them. To submit to Jesus. Here, we think about how the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And at any time you have people who claim to be atheists, all they're doing is raising their hand saying, hey, I'm the person identified in, in Psalm 14 or, or Psalm 53 by saying, hey, I'm the fool. Anyone who claims to be an atheist proclaims himself to be this fool. And this fool is at enmity with God. It's manifested in hostility to all things related to Christ. Hostility to his word. Jesus is the word. So it's hostility to his Bible. God has given us his word. And we understand it to be clear. We understand it to be necessary. We understand it to be authoritative. We understand it to be sufficient for all of life and godliness. So those who are told, hey, we must submit to God and his word. Huh. No, they want no part of it. Because there's a rejection of it. There's a rejection of his body, meaning the church. Hey, being a Christian, hey, we should come and worship God. We should have fellowship with other people. Those who also submit to the Lord Jesus. That there's a delight, there's a desire to be among God's people. That there's an eagerness to come and to be with the people of God. There's also other, his people, meaning Christians. That Christians then become the, become the representatives, become the fragrance of life unto life and of death unto death. Here, we're, we're always focused on this, hey, we, we need to be the fragrance of life unto life. Of course, this is what we desire. But you realize at the same time, you also will be a fragrance of death unto death. What does that mean? It means that as, as you think you are proclaiming good news, what sinners who reject the gospel smell is not the smell, uh, the fragrance of life. They smell the fragrance of death, meaning reminder of judgment to come. 
here. You think about how our Lord Jesus is the only hope that you have for peace with God. Outside of Christ, there is no peace with God. Here, we ask the question, how will you make peace with God? The prophet Micah, in chapter 6, he asks several of these questions. Will you come with burnt offerings and calves a year old? What about coming with a thousand rams? How many of you have dealt with goats, dealt with rams? They're rather naughty creatures. Right here, I had a friend who, who had a goat, and he had a sheep. And he says, oh, the sheep is, is rather friendly. The goat, though, he's always up to no good. He, this goat would get out of the pen in however many ways. Uh, but yeah, try, to, try to get a 1,000 goats or a 1,000 rams together. But then 10,000 rivers of oil. Here we think about giving up your firstborn. Is that enough to cover your transgression? The answer of none of those are. God required the, the bulls and the goats. It was only pointing ahead to the perfect sacrifice who is Jesus Christ. It was an instruction to God's people, the types and shadows. Listen, you need to have the shedding of blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Here God provided the very sacrifice that satisfies it is only one who is Jesus. He is the one who provides the perfect satisfaction. He is the one who establishes peace for you between God. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That wall has been removed. Here we think about how he does this. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here, justification is very principle that our sins have been pardoned and that God receives us as righteous in his sight not because of anything we've done, but by faith we receive the very righteousness of Jesus as your own, as my own. And that in him we have the perfect sacrifice, the blood, his blood shed on the cross that washes us clean. And because of this, we have obtained access by faith. By faith we have access to God. That in this grace we stand, and because of it we have hope. So having peace having grace from God, and then we rejoice in hope that we will, we will be raised up anew, not to be condemned, but to be exonerated, to be declared as righteous because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting that you're a very likable person? that you do things right, that you follow the law? Here, I'm warning that these things only work against you. The more you point to the law to justify you, the more the law condemns you. Instead, we ought to see that Jesus does the very thing we're unable to do, 
That's obey the law perfectly. And that in Jesus we have our perfect sacrifice. We have our perfect righteousness. And you and I are called to trust in him. Not in ourselves. We're called that we ought to, to claim his promises. Believe upon him. Trust that his provision is perfect. Here having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You may also have peace of conscience. Meaning peace within. In order to have peace within. You must have peace vertically with God. Though the world may smile upon you. Though the world may show its favor upon you. If you lack the peace of conscience. The peace within. Because your conscience condemns you. Then there will be no peace within. It is only God who grants such peace. We see that the opposite is, is also true. That if God is for us, then who is against us? The Apostle Paul doesn't bother to answer that question. If God is for us, who is against us? And the answer is it doesn't matter. The whole world can be against you. The whole world can say, this person, they can make up all kinds of lies and accusations against you. At the last day, there's only one opinion that matters. And that opinion is fact. There there is no cross-examination at that point. There's no appeal because there's no higher court. That when God says he is for us, then it matters not who is against you. Even the world can be, the entire world can be against you. God is for you. That's all that counts. Here, we think about how God alone gives you this peace of conscience. We read it earlier in in Psalm chapter 4, the last verse, verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It is no small thing to be able to come to rest and fall asleep. People take that for granted. You ask for the wicked, for the wicked who are in fear of their lives because there's not only verbal conflict, there's physical conflict. You think about how life is. How can they close their eyes and fall asleep? Who's going to watch over them? You have the anomaly. For Christians, we understand There's someone who's always watching over us and protecting us. We're able to close our eyes. We're able to rest because our Lord Jesus is the one who gives us true rest. That our God alone is the one who grants us true rest. And he allows us to dwell in safety. Isaiah 26.3 You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Because you trust in Jesus Christ. Because you trust in God's sovereign power to preserve you, to protect you. We can trust that he is with us. And that having God's abiding presence with you means that you can have his perfect peace. Here. When you have this peace within you. When the peace from God comes upon you then it makes all your crosses in life bearable. Here, the world thinks from the perspective 
if I can eliminate all the little irritations, all the little distractions and disturbances, then I can have peace. What Christ is telling us is that peace is not the elimination of all those difficulties. Peace is, is trusting that God is far greater than all of them, that he will take care of them. It makes your cross bearable. Your cross is bearable when you have peace within. Have you wondered this? You realize that earlier in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul was was giving instructions to different groups, giving instructions uh, to parents, to children, and then to slaves, and then to masters. And you realize he doesn't say to the masters, I require manumission for every one of your slaves. You must, you must set them all free. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't tell the slaves, you know what? You ought to be free. He says, you are free. You're free in Jesus Christ. And the reason why one can have perfect peace and bear these crosses is because God gives us peace within. And we see that the Apostle Paul is not speaking out of two ends of his mouth because here at the end of the letter, he's speaking uh, to the, the believers in Ephesus and he's concerned about their well-being. He's concerned about their comfort even when he is realizing that his condemnation, his execution is forthcoming. It's almost there. But the Lord gave him peace. Here, perhaps we can use this diagnostically. If there are any minor disturbances or hiccups in your life, if this results in a total meltdown for you, could it be that your peace might be lacking? God gives peace to his people, and all his children may enjoy this peace. In other words, we ought to say, you think about justification. Justification is all or none. There's no degrees of justification. What God provides in justification is perfect. We can also say that if any Christian is lacking peace, it's not because of what God has not done or has not done perfectly. God gives his people peace. It's the understanding, acceptance, enjoying of it. There might be something lacking in us. His peace, Jesus says, he has given you. Having this peace from God then allows you to bear these crosses and also allows you to glory in tribulation. It allows you to rejoice even in difficulties. This is the product then of this peace, peace within, peace of conscience. Romans 5, 3 to 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he uh, who, who has been given to us. Here, we think also about how peace is the product of prayer to God. Meaning that God gives us his peace, but he also allows us 
when we lack peace, that we might come to him in prayer. <coughs> Philippians 4, 6-7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Here, God has given us a means. If you and I are ever lacking peace, he's commanded us that we might come to him and that he is the one who provides us this peace. Have you ever wondered, what are ways in which Christians may lose or weaken this peace from God? In your own life, in my life, whenever worldliness begins to displace a faithful and tender walk with God, if we're starting to veer off that path, if gravity is pulling us towards the world, then the peace from God will begin to be lacking. When you're no longer living by godly principles, when they're impinged upon, when pragmatism starts to take over in our lives, peace with God is lacking. When your practice conforms to the temptations that you face, so you're giving in to the temptations that come your way, then peace will vaporize. When, <coughs> excuse me, when the present becomes more important than eternity, that your focus is on the here and now, the things of this life, chasing after the ways of this world, the present then, when that becomes our main focus, our peace will disappear. And when material and physical things are prioritized over the spiritual things, then peace will begin to go. Here, besides peace with God, peace within, you have those two, and then you stand a shot at having peace with others or peace without. In Proverbs 16, verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. This might be true in your workplace, that there might be difficult people no one likes to work with, but part of your witness is being able to work alongside those people, maybe work for those people. Here, we think about how we ought to have the heart of servants. And certain people will say, I cannot submit to that manager or that supervisor. And maybe everyone says the same thing. But when it's your turn, you have the bigger picture. What you ought to say is, I am submitting to the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, that person is not my master. He's not the one who makes, or she's not the one who make, makes or breaks me by that review. Because ultimately, I'm serving Christ. And that this is what we ought to look forward to. That person doesn't give my review. God does. God is the one who changes the hearts of men. Here, we think also, on one hand, when we please the Lord, he allows us to live at peace with our enemies. But ultimately, he often gives us reminders that we will not, we will not be received by the world. Jesus said, John 15, 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
So on one hand, Proverbs is true. Proverbs 16, 7 is true. That you please the Lord, he allows you to have peace with your enemies. But we also have to be reminded that God's people have been chosen out of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are chosen out of the world, Jesus says, this is why the world hates you. We have to have this reminder rather often that, hey, we can't love the world. We can't be friends with the world. And this is why there's often opposition. There's often rejection that we face in the world because of Christ. We're being reminded that we and the world, we cannot be friends. Here, we continue that it's not just peace. Verse 23, peace be to the brothers. But he also says, and love with faith. Besides peace, love and faith are also God's gifts to his people. That it's in love that we've been predestined. That God's love is what covers us. Here, think about how I was speaking to a friend recently. And uh, he's filling in for his pastor who's uh, away on vacation. And he told me he's preaching on John 3.16. And here you ask, well, some people might ask, well, why are you preaching on that? Well, you realize John 3.16 is in the Bible. It's Holy Scripture. Just because certain people may overemphasize it or misunderstand it doesn't mean that we should not have it. Correct? We, we, we should have a right understanding of it. And it is God's grace. It is his love that he, that he sent his son to die on behalf of sinners. There's, there's, no, there's no falsehood in that. That is true for us. And it's God's love that motivated him. Here we think also about how peace, love, and faith come to us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of you are immediately thinking, well, wait a minute. Why didn't he mention the Holy Spirit? You notice he does this exact same thing in Ephesians chapter 1, verse, verse 2. Is it, that the Holy Spirit was left out. But it's not as if the Holy Spirit is never mentioned. He's mentioned throughout the book of Ephesians. That the Holy Spirit is the one who applies for us uh, these, the, the peace and the love and the faith given from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first point, the blessing of peace to the brothers. We also have the second point, the blessing of grace to all who love Christ. In verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Here, grace is the origin of it all. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's God's grace that is praised. It's God's grace by which you and I are received. It's by grace that we've been saved. That's apart from works. So you have, on one hand, salvation by grace. That's one way. And then you have the other way, salvation by works. That, that's not Christianity, but there's only two ways to heaven. It's by works or it's by grace. And if you try to combine the two, the end result is only works. Grace uh, gets tarnished. It gets polluted. So either you're going to have salvation by grace as a free gift from Jesus, or 
you're going to work for it. And we're told that the law is such a high standard, none of us can earn it. How will you receive it? Will you humbly receive the promise of the gospel by faith? That you receive the promises of Jesus Christ? And you say, hey, it is only by grace that I'm saved. I have no boast of my own. This is how salvation is given to sinners. This is how we receive it. It's by grace. And it's in contrast to works. This grace also did not end with you getting saved. It wasn't as if God's grace, okay, his sins are forgiven. Now let's just put him in the dumpster and let him grovel for the, for the remaining years of his life. No, this is not how God deals with his people at all. God's grace, his favor is, is so abounding that his, his grace extended to sending his son. His grace extended to the giving of the Holy Spirit as a deposit. So it's for your comfort. You are saved. You've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. But so that you might be comfortable. That you might treasure all of the things that God has taught you. He's given you the deposit of the Holy Spirit. And not only that. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 speaks about how when Jesus ascended on high... That by his grace, he gave gifts to men. Meaning that gifts are given to those within the church. It's by God's grace that he gives spiritual gifts even. So that the body might be built up and edified. So this is, this is just a foretaste of, of God's grace. That his grace keeps on extending. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And then we ask, well, who receives this grace? Verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. We ought not to walk away and think, if I'm able to love God good enough, if my love is perfect enough, then God will extend to me his grace. That's not how it works. God's grace extends to us because none of us are loving. None of us are lovable. Here, it's not that we love God, but God loved us and sent his son to die for us. Here, you ought to understand that the cause, the cause, the primary work was God in sending his grace to sinners. The effect, the effect is that you and I might love the Lord in response. He is the one who acts. He is the one who initiates. And that our response is that we have a sincere love. Or this love incorruptible. Here, this is a reminder to us regarding our love. We cannot be in a situation where we're saying to God, God, I'll love you if you fix and deal with all the problems in my life. But if you don't, then I'm not going to love you. Because here, that's, that's a love with conditions. That becomes a manipulative love. We ought to think about love as, God, you've saved me by a great deliverance through your son that you freely offered on my behalf. That I will live for your glory. And I will live with all the consequences of my own bad decisions. Isn't this the life of David? Here you read the, the book of Second Samuel. Wasn't this David? I mean, what we're seeing... God said, 
David, the sword will not depart from your home. That there will be turmoil. That, that was the second half of the book of 2 Samuel. Is turmoil was in his home because he sinned against God. But you never heard David complain, God, these consequences are too great for me to bear. No, he accepted them. He understood, God, you are merciful. And if, you, if you've left these thorns in my side, they're there for a reason. So also we ought to say, God, your grace to us is sufficient. Your power is made perfect in weakness. There are reminders to us that there are consequences to sin. That Jesus removed for us the eternal consequence. We deal with some of the minor ones in this life. Not many. In fact, the Lord removes, in his grace, removes most of them. But he allows us to understand that there are consequences. Here, the warnings about love. That we ought not to love material possessions. We will be separated from them. Here, as we think about the loss of recent loved ones. In the pyramids of Egypt, these were wealthy men, powerful men, who built monuments for themselves. They said, we want all the things that we take with us in the afterlife. Last time I checked, they're still there in the pyramids. They were even thinking ahead of, hey, when I die, these favorite servants of mine, they will all be executed because I want them with me in the afterlife. That would be a bad situation. That would be a bad situation to be a favorite servant. We realize all of those material things we must, we must leave behind. So we must love God. We must love people and not love material possessions. But we are not called to use people. We're called to use material goods. We're called to love people. Love must be sincere, meaning that it must not be with hypocrisy. There must not be ulterior motives in our love. No one likes to be loved in that way. You've seen it. You've experienced it. <clears throat> we delight when others love us with no hypocrisy, no ulterior motives. God desires that love also. Here, when we think through these verses, two verses, we think through how this can be of good use to us. The world often speaks about good luck or about lady luck, about someone telling someone else, good luck to you. We ought not to think in those terms anymore. Even as the Apostle Paul pronounces peace and grace to others, we understand the good that comes our way all comes through the hand of God. That these are God's blessings. So that we must no longer think in terms of luck and fortune and lady luck. We ought to think about God, that he is the one who grants the blessing. And we ought to understand that we have no good of our own. So if we're going to bless others, it must be by the words of the Lord, by God. God is the one who grants that blessing. Here, we ought to remember the abundant peace that God has established for you through his son. And that this is the peace that he gives to you. That this is your possession. You ought to treasure it. That you ought to desire uh, not to rob yourself of this peace. Are you doing anything in your life now to disturb this peace that you have from God through Jesus Christ? We ought to remember also 
because you have peace vertically with God, because you have peace of conscience, peace within, you must also be thinking about peace without, peace with others. As you witness others who are at war all around them, instead of an attitude of hate and condemnation, there ought to be an understanding that is exactly what you and I would be if we lacked peace above, peace within, that there ought to be a willingness to bear witness of this good news to others, that this is how you can have peace. This peace is freely offered to sinners in Jesus Christ. Here, it's also a reminder to us about God's grace. God's grace to us, His favor is unmerited. We did nothing to earn it. And because of that, it should cause you to rejoice and to give thanks all the more. That instead of thinking and looking at the things that you're missing, that you and I should constantly see and give thanks and rejoice in this grace that he's freely bestowed upon us through his son. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you that you give peace to your people. This peace that you give to us indeed is a great treasure because those who are outside of Christ do not have it. Father, we pray in thanks for the peace that you have given to us. This peace was a costly peace. It cost the blood of your son. Father, we pray that your people would delight in this peace, that they would rejoice in it, that they would uh, desire, that they would treasure it. Father, we thank you for your generous provision for us. Father, we thank you for the humble reminder that we need each day of your grace, that your grace is sufficient for us, that your grace to us abounds. And Father, we thank you for the regular reminders that you give us of it. Father, may we rejoice and give praise to you. We thank you for the grace of your Son. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your hymnals to hymn 483. We'll stand and sing together, Loved with Everlasting Love, 483. Jesus, please.